0: Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. Before we get started with today's guest, I want to tell you about a project I've been working on for what seems like most of my life. My book, Running With Ghosts, A Memoir of Surviving Childhood Cancer, will finally be available on September 1st. The book is being published by the Sager Group, who also did Michael Brick's anthology, Everyone Leaves Behind a Name, which we featured on episode 45. When I was 15, I was diagnosed with leukemia. At the time, survival rates for the cancer I had was 50%. Obviously, I survived. The book is partly about that fight, but really, it's more about my trying to understand why I survived. I met a lot of other kids who had cancer when I was sick, and they didn't all make it. One of my nurses died of her own cancer just before I started college. And my doctor, Alex Kufis. He's the father of Costa Kufis, who plays for the Sacramento Kings developed cancer after I was better, and died in 1998, just before I graduated from college. I wrote a piece for SB Nation Longform in April of 2015 called The Ghosts I Run With. That piece was about the fact that when I run, I think of all those kids and my doctor and my nurse, the ones who didn't survive. I found out after that piece ran that I didn't actually know a great deal about them, despite the fact I think about them all the time. So I set out to connect with the families of those patients. And that's what the second half of Running With Ghosts is about. This idea that I could find meaning in my survival by telling the stories of those who can't speak anymore. The book will be available by September 1st, anywhere books are sold. It'll be available as a paperback, but also as an ebook on Amazon.com. There's a website where you can get updates on the book. That's at www.runningwithghosts.com. Just a bit ago, I mentioned the Michael Brick episode. Today's guest appeared on that show to talk about Brick's work. But finally, we have Thomas Lake here to talk about his own amazing stories. Lake is a senior writer at CNN Digital. He just published a three-story series titled The Trigger and the Choice, which examines multiple aspects of police shootings. Prior to joining CNN, Lake was the youngest ever senior writer at Sports Illustrated. Some of his most amazing stories include Two on Five, which won the Henry Luce Award for Most Outstanding Story for 2008 across all Time Incorporated publications, The Boy They Couldn't Kill, which was named one of the 60 best features in the history of Sports Illustrated, and The Boy Who Died of Football, which was anthologized in Next Wave, America's new generation of great literary journalists. Lake has also been anthologized in Best American Sports Writing four times. One of his first big projects at CNN was authoring the book, Unprecedented, The Election That Changed Everything. That book was published just one month after the November 2016 presidential election. Welcome to Gangway the Podcast, Tom. Glad to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me. You know, I can't believe that it's taken me 53 episodes uh, to get you on the show. This is the the 53rd episode now. And this episode, I mean, this whole podcast actually came out of something that we worked on together um, back in 2012 when we did that uh, virtual roundtable for Creative Nonfiction Magazine. Um which seems so long ago now, but uh, I'm I'm glad I I'm glad I have you here uh, to talk about your own work because you you were on the Michael Brick uh, episode that we did, uh, but I'm excited to talk to you about um, about your own work.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's been a strange few years, lots of uh, weird twists and turns, but uh, here I am. Life comes at you fast,
0: <laughs> <laughs> definitely. So, let's start out by talking about um, the series of stories um, that just recently went live on CNN.com, um, which the larger title of the project, I think, is The Trigger and the Choice, uh, but it's made up of three parts, um, The Endless Death of Kyle Dinkeller, Ferguson Affected, and City of Good Neighbors. Um, first off, can you give a, like a brief rundown of what the entire series is about?
1: Sure. The series is about uh, the hardest decision a police officer has to make, which is uh, whether or not to pull the trigger. And this has always been uh, a huge issue uh, ever since there were police officers and guns in this country, but uh, certainly has come to the forefront in a way like never before in the last three years or so, uh, particularly since uh, the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson in, uh, in 2014. And so, uh, I wanted to take a look at this issue, uh, and do it in a little bit of a different way than, uh, had been done, uh, it, you know, recently anyway, which was to try to understand what it's like, uh, for a police officer to be in that situation, um, and to help explain, uh, why police do what they do, Uh, and and this series was was a product of that. And so uh, the first part, uh, The Endless death of Kyle Keller, it's about um, a deputy sheriff in Lawrence County, Georgia, rural Georgia, who was killed during a traffic stop uh, in 1998 because he wouldn't shoot, Uh, Part two is about Ferguson and uh, about what happened after the protesters left and after uh, the police department really pulled back and stopped being as proactive or some would say overactive as it had been uh, and and some surprising results in that uh, town. And then part three uh, is all about the police department in Buffalo, New York, which had gone nearly five years without a fatal officer-involved shooting. And I visited there and did ride-alongs with some of their um, most proactive officers to get a sense of what they were doing right and how they had managed to avoid this. And uh, something uh, pretty surprising happened after I visited there, which was that uh, a couple of the officers who I had gone on ride-alongs with uh, were involved in a fatal shooting. And then that time of, of nearly five years without a fatal shooting uh, abruptly came to an
0: end. Yeah. I definitely want to talk with you about that and like the, the, how it changed every, what you were doing with that story. But we'll get to that in, in a little bit. Um, how, how did the, uh, how did the idea for these three stories come about? I mean, it, it, the police, um, police shootings have been, like you said, since Ferguson, um, really prominent in, in media coverage. But in terms of like coming up with the idea for, for the three different stories, how did you go about doing that?
1: I would say part one uh, the Dean Keller story had been in my mind for years, um, going back to probably 2014 or 2015, uh, at, you know, either when I was with Sports Illustrated or, or, or before I joined CNN, uh, you know, there had been some brief mention of the Dean Keller incident along with coverage uh, of police-involved shootings, but, you know, it was just sort of a passing mention, and and I remember thinking about that at the time, you know, it sure would be interesting to dive into that whole story, try to tell it from A to Z. And so that was just in the back of my mind uh, for a couple of years as this uh, series of notorious police-involved shootings uh, continued to uh, dominate media coverage in this country and I, I would think about it off and on while I was covering other things and not able to write about it and to say to people I knew this country is in a real policing crisis right now and it's getting, it seems to be getting worse and worse uh, I want to understand what's going on and why and um, do use the skills I have uh, as um, as a reporter and a writer to try to shed some light on that. Uh, And I didn't get a chance to do to start working on it until this past January. I just finished a book on the presidential election and came up with this idea. I submitted it to an editor uh, here at CNN, Jan Winburn, uh, who was in charge of the enterprise team. Um, And I said, Jan, could we work on this? series together. And she was like, well, it sounds great, but let's uh, see if we can propose it as a three-part series. And so I did some more research, and she helped me with the proposal. I sent the memo to uh, the editor-in-chief, Meredith Hartley uh, of CNN Digital, and she uh, she decided to give me the chance to do this. And so over the next few months, Jan and I uh, consulted with each other as I did more and more research, and lots of ideas came up for cities that we could focus on. Uh, I looked at Baltimore. I looked at Chicago, St. Louis. There were all different possibilities, the twin cities in Minnesota, but um, ultimately uh, kept coming back uh, to these two places, Ferguson and Buffalo. Ferguson, because it had been the ground zero for so much uh, action. And, And then, had had these surprising after effects, and Buffalo because I wanted to know what it's like when officers find a way not to shoot. And so there were you know dozens of possibilities out there, but you know after as the research and the reporting went forward, it narrowed to focusing on on those two cities in addition to making the Dink heller story part one, which was really always part of the plan.
0: Right. Was it always did you always know that that Dink heller story would be the the first part of the series?
1: I think I did. It was just there was something it felt like in, in a way the sort of emotional center of everything, not just because of what had happened to Dean Keller, but because of the way it explained the mindset of police officers and uh, the way their fear Uh, sometimes guides them in in a lot of good ways, but sometimes in in negative ways when they're too quick to shoot.
0: Did you, uh, you you said you kind of kept coming back to Ferguson, which I I think makes sense on on this. Um, How quickly, when did you learn about Buffalo? Because that, I mean, that was a really interesting third piece, um, primarily because, like, I had no idea that Buffalo had that kind of that police department that that was operating in this way that is entirely different from what we've kind of assumed all police departments act over the last couple of years.
1: You know, uh, there's this group. Um, they're actually some of the same people from Black Lives Matter, uh, and they they operate a website called Mapping Police Violence, I think MappingPoliceViolence.org. And so in the course of my research, um, I remember visiting that site a few times. They have all this uh, very detailed data about fatal police shootings and race and comparing one city to another. Uh, It's pretty sophisticated what they've done with that site. And in the course of looking uh, at that site one day, I noticed – how they were comparing the rates of fatal shootings in various departments, and they showed Buffalo as the lowest rate of uh, fatal violence that involved police. And I was like, wait, that's pretty interesting. I don't remember ever seeing any national news outlet write about that. What's going on there? And that's really uh, how it started, was just that simple question, what's going on there? And uh, so I started making calls up to Buffalo, um, initially their police department. Um, no one would return my calls. Uh, but this guy, Murray Holman, from this group called the Buffalo Peacemaker, is a sort of intermediary citizen group that helps improve relationships between the police and the community, he called me right back. And Murray, uh, if you've read the story, you know is this sort of amazing figure on the streets of Buffalo, six foot seven. Uh, He's a grandfather, former basketball player. Uh, When Murray walks around, uh, people, people's heads turn. And and when he talks, people listen. And I was like, Murray, can I come up and visit you and see what you do? And he said, yeah, come on up. And once that happened, a lot of doors started to open. I mean, I just rode around the city with him for a few days in the frigid winter of Mm -hmm. Buffalo. There's, uh, I've been in a lot of places in winter, and I don't know that I've ever felt this kind of biting cold that I felt there in early March. just this combination of cold, uh, moist from the lake, and brutal wind. But anyway, we were riding around the city of Buffalo, and he starts to talk about the Buffalo police. And I'm like, well, Murray, they're not returning my calls. I can't get anybody to talk to me from there. He's like, oh, no problem. I know Captain Nichols. We'll just go see him i was like really you, just, you have to go through like the pr team or something he was like no, no no just come on we're gonna go see captain nichols i was like all right murray <laughs> you lead the way right. and sure enough uh, murray led the way right into the into police headquarters and there was captain nichols and uh the rest uh you know it just got sort of easier from there uh, i was able to come back again and and do this ride-along that really uh, became the, the core of that mm-hmm. story. Right. Uh, I was able to also get a ride-along in Ferguson, same thing, but getting access to these police departments was very difficult mm-hmm. uh, initially. And, and in both cases, I didn't get the access before actually showing up in the city. And um, I think a lot of police are very skeptical of the media right mm-hmm. now, uh, especially in... In part, I think because of the, the media coverage of the last three years, they feel like so much of it has been negative. And so uh, that was, I think, one of the biggest challenges, reporting challenges in this whole series mm-hmm. was um, telling uh, these people in law enforcement, um, I'm really going to try to be fair. Uh, and I just want to know what it's like to do your job. And eventually some of them were willing to let me see that.
0: Yeah. You mentioned earlier a little bit ago um, that that um buffalo you had had a, a, a very long time without any fatal police shootings uh and, and that's what drew you there uh and then in may um they actually did have a a, a police shooting um and I, i'm curious uh how uh and, and the buffalo piece is t- is titled city of good neighbors I, i'm curious like what uh where were you at in terms of writing that story before that happened uh and what what did you have to do after that happened
1: great question matt uh i was hustling to finish the writing and i knew that by i actually turned in the story uh quite a while ago because then it went through some editing and there were some other reasons for the delay in coming out but um, uh I wrote these stories in order, first the Dean Keller piece, then the Ferguson piece, then the Buffalo piece, and I was going to turn them in to the editors, all three at once. And I had been working through the weekend, uh, I think the first weekend in May, uh, just trying to to get the Buffalo piece nailed down. Had the ending, um, knew I was going to end it with this scene where the cops, uh, these sort of hard-nosed cops, show up in a a yard in a housing project. It looks like they're going to go in and and knock some heads together and instead they get out of their cars and they're just surrounded by children who greet them like heroes. And the kids want them to play football and do Mm -hmm. foot races with them. And the cops do that apparently because they they show up at that, uh, those apartments all the time to just uh, play with the kids. And there's like a genuine uh, love there where you know they really care about the kids, and the kids really love seeing them. So that was going to be the ending, not only to that story, but to the whole series. It mm-hmm. seemed just right. So uh, it's a it's a Sunday afternoon. I've pretty much written to the end, written that section, and who should I hear from but Murray? Uh, and he's like, uh, "You got to get to the uh, you got to look up the news, look up Buffalo News. There's been a shooting." And I was like, "What?" Yeah, it was like the cops did a shooting. I was like, oh, my goodness. So I go, uh, I start reading up on what's happened. Um, It turns out that these two cops, um, Joseph Aquino and and Justin Tedesco, have been involved in a fatal shooting. Aquino had been terribly injured, nearly had his ear torn off, uh, and Tedesco uh, shot someone to death. It was all part of a traffic stop. And I'm like, okay, um, I guess this story is going to require a little bit of changing. And because um, I, you know, I'd ridden along with those two guys mm-hmm. and they were, right. you know, they had already been mentioned in the story. So, and I had like audio of, of interviewing um, Joseph anyway, to, uh, yeah, actually both of them. And so, yeah, obviously then the, the there had to be a, a new ending uh, for the story. And, uh, I mean, someone had a uh, young man, uh, Jose Hernandez Rossi had lost his life. There was a question of exactly how it happened. Uh, the New York state attorney general's office was going to get involved and investigate. Uh, as we speak now, there's still not a resolution in that case. There's been no determination on who did what right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, the, on the other hand, uh, it made me think, it's pretty amazing that they went as long as they did without one of these fatal shootings. But inevitably when there are this many highly charged interactions between officers and citizens, uh, there's going to be times when people get uh, severely injured or even killed.
0: Right. Right. So that you mentioned um, getting access to the police department was, was a big challenge. Uh, and obviously I think having, of the story change on you like that is also another challenge. Were there any other challenges that came to you either in reporting or the writing uh, of these stories uh, as you worked on them?
1: Right out of the gate uh, for the first story. Um, Kyle Dean Keller's father, Kirk, who's really in a sense the the main character mm-hmm. in the first story. Uh, I knew that in order to get anywhere on that story, uh, I had to get cooperation from him, and uh, I, I found his phone number, called him up, explained who I was and what I what I wanted to do. He was a little guarded. I said, "Can I come visit you?" He lives uh, not far from where I work uh, in Atlanta. He lives, you know, way south of here. Can I drive down and, and visit you? And he thought about it, and then he was like, "Okay, I guess so." And so. Uh, uh, a while later, a couple weeks later, I, I went down to his house, and uh, he welcomed me uh, into his house, and we sat down at his kitchen table, and uh, I started to ask him questions, and he was like, whoa there, whoa, just a minute, before you ask anything, I have a whole lot of questions for you, and I was like, okay. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm here to, to answer your questions. Go ahead. He, he, I think he had like a legal pad in front of him mm-hmm. and, uh, he, he just, it was like I was saying before about skepticism of the media, especially, uh, among those in law enforcement and, and close to the law enforcement community. Um, there's a lot of, uh, mutual distrust, I mm-hmm. think, uh, right now and he just he was like why are you doing this why are you doing it now uh who are you what are your motives uh what's cnn really trying to do here and i said look i i get it i I understand why you're skeptical um because uh there has been a lot of uh negative coverage of law enforcement in recent years, uh, you know, but um, I just, I want to listen. I want to hear your story and and tell the story of Kyle and his life and death uh, the way it should be told, you know, and I'm, I know I said a lot more than that, mm-hmm. but uh, by the time it was over, uh, for some reason, um, he was willing to me a chance maybe his his desire just to be heard and understood ended up winning out Mm -hmm. and um and so from then on you know he he was willing to tell me all he knew or or most of it anyway and um and and the story came out uh friday and you know he texted me and said thanks uh you did what you said you were going to do
0: I'm curious did you do you did you in this instance maybe not but have you shared previous stuff that you've written with, with subjects who might be hesitant uh, to talk with you because I'm thinking um, one of the things that struck me about the 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 first piece is I mean it, you have written other pieces about um, sons who have died obviously not uh, as police officers uh, but you have, you have worked with these families who have gone through the process of losing a son. Um, do, you, do you ever use some of your previous work to kind of show uh, a potential story subject, kind of where you're coming from as a reporter?
1: Yes, I do. And in fact, I did that this time with a few people who were skeptical and, and hesitant. And in fact, I think I did it with Kirk. I probably sent him some links to some stories online at, at one point while we were emailing. So yes, that's a, mm-hmm. a, a, a great point. And I've done that bef- I, in previous times. I've gone so far as to make up uh, physical packages with like photocopies of stories mm-hmm. and, and mail them to people who I'm hoping will talk to me. Right. And um, that does not always work, but uh, but sometimes it does. Sometimes I think it shows a sort of level of dedication and seriousness that. Uh, potential sources appreciate. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes they'll look and they'll say, okay, well, I see that you've written about death and loss and tragedy before, hopefully in a humane and sensitive way. Okay, I'll, I'll give you a chance. And um, enough people, plenty of people didn't, who I wanted to talk to in, in, for this series, but enough did uh, to, to make it possible
0: uh you mentioned um that uh you got a text uh from uh uh Dink Heller's father uh after that story went live have have you what's a, what's the the rest of the feedback been like
1: uh very positive you know uh i've been i've been grateful for that and it seems to be from uh a lot of different places on the political spectrum whether you know people on the right and, and on the left and that's Uh, been particularly satisfying because there's so little, it seems like uh, these days that uh, Americans can agree on just in this time of awful uh, political negativity. Um, So to hear that police officers felt like they had been heard and understood here, but also um, some folks, as I said, more on the, you know, the liberal side, and they seem to um, get something out of it, too. And and I said, you know, uh, that kind of made me breathe a sigh of relief because uh, this is such a dangerous topic, and I was worried that I would maybe say something very wrong. But I should, um, about that, I, uh, I should note that as many as maybe a dozen people within CNN, perhaps even more, read this before it came out Mm -hmm. and um you know people from all different backgrounds races etc and gave really excellent thoughtful helpful feedback Mm -hmm. and lots of suggestions for additions and subtractions um which i made and which i think ultimately made the pieces much better Mm -hmm. so i was grateful that the editing process even though it was took a long time i think it was very worthwhile here
0: that's good uh, tom we're going to take a short break um i will be back with more from thomas lake of cnn uh in just a minute gangrene the podcast is brought to you by the college of arts and sciences at fairfield university which grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection, while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. Students work with passionate faculty and have the chance to study abroad, participate in civic engagement, and conduct hands-on research across a variety of disciplines. And by the Department of English at Fairfield University, which is home to the digital journalism major, as well as an English major with concentrations in literature, creative writing, English studies, professional writing, and teacher education. For more information on the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English, go to fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis, and I'm talking with Thomas Lake, a senior writer at CNN Digital. Uh, Tom, can we talk a little bit about what it's like to be a long-form writer for CNN? Um, I think most people, when they think of CNN, they think primarily of TV and not necessarily um, uh, written, like long-form written journalism. So what's that been like for you?
1: Yeah, uh, well, there's an editor uh, with CNN. Her name is... Shan Winburn, and about 15 years ago, uh, she and I crossed paths at uh, one of the old Neiman narrative conferences up in the Boston area. And at the time she was, uh, an award-winning editor at the Baltimore Sun. And she, uh, she was on a panel there at the Neiman conference with, uh, one of her writers, uh, Lisa Pollock, who had, uh, won a Pulitzer Prize for feature writing. The two of them were talking about the writer-editor collaboration. Well, I was 22 years old, uh, writing for a tiny little uh, paper uh, up on the North Shore of Boston, Um, not even on staff, just a a, a stringer for $45 a story. And uh, I had brought uh, a manila envelope full of uh, photocopies of my little 8 to 10-inch stories. And uh, and I heard Jen's talk, thought she was wonderful, and um, slipped her one of these packages and said, um, hey, my name's Tom, will you read my stories? And she uh, very generously uh, took it and said, sure, come see me tomorrow and we'll talk. And, uh, And I did. And she was very encouraging. And we followed up by email. Um, It didn't immediately lead to a job. I still was very raw and and wasn't ready uh, to work with her at that point. But we stayed in touch uh, off and on for, um, you know, over 10 years as I worked my way up in the business Well, she uh, came down to uh, Atlanta, uh, where I live now, and and eventually took a job as the enterprise editor at CNN Digital, which... um, some people uh, may or may not know, is the most read news website in the world and uh, is still, I think, trying to build its reputation for, um, for long-form narrative. But, but Jan has been, and her writers have been doing that kind of work for quite a while now. Well, anyway, flash forward to 2015. Uh, I lose my job at Sports Illustrated, budget cuts, etc. Uh, a former colleague of mine uh, in the, at the St. Petersburg Times, Catherine Schuykett, um, helps sort of reconnect me with Jan. And uh, I go meet her and say, look, I, re- I really need a job. Uh, once again, just as I had done uh, 13 years earlier, uh, I brought Jan a manila envelope, of my stories uh, and, and said, once again, uh, I need a job. In fact, uh, my then um, almost three-year-old son and I uh, took the train downtown to CNN Center to deliver this package to her. Um, and we went down and uh, she met us in the lobby and I said, here's these stories. Will you please pass these along to Uh, Meredith Meredith Artley, the editor-in-chief, and she said, yes, I'm going to do that. And uh, at that point, I was uh, in a tough place. My severance package had run out. Freelance stories um, were not paying the bills. Uh, We had a lot of medical bills because uh, my wife and I, our our infant son had been in the hospital, but then had come out, and he was doing okay, but, but that still added up. And, you know, we needed a breakthrough. And uh, we were a one-income family, so we needed—I needed a job that would, would would pay all the bills itself. And anyway, Jan uh, made good and and passed the package along to Meredith, and Meredith uh, found a way to uh, to get me on the payroll. But the only opening was uh, with the politics team, which I had never done before. Right. Uh, I had never written about politics really in any way, uh, other than like local school committees and city councils and stuff. But it turned out they wanted somebody who had some of those sort of magazine writing skills I had because they had this interesting new project, uh, where they wanted to write essentially a real time book about, uh, the presidential election. And so very long story, very short, uh, I did that project, uh, worked with some veteran um, political folks and uh, editors in Washington and, and survived it. It was uh, really tough at times, but, uh, but got it done by the end of 2015. Um, that book came out last December. It's called Unprecedented, The Election That Changed Everything. Um, but all along I I wished for the chance to actually work with Jan because I didn't get to work with her on, on the book project mm-hmm. so when I brought her this uh, idea for the police series um, you know she passed it along to Meredith again and this time uh, once again Meredith said okay you've got the green light do this so nearly 15 years after our first meeting there at the <laughs> Neiman narrative conference uh, Jan and I finally got to work together on a story and what you read, um, this three-part series, uh, it's there's that long overdue collaboration, uh, and working with her was, uh, every bit as wonderful as I hoped it would be. Uh, she was smart and tough and kind and, uh, just, uh, nurturing and, uh, you know, ask the right questions at the right times. And then I sent in the stories and she had just, just the right number of line edits. Mm-hmm. So it was an, an absolute dream. And, um, here we go. Finally, right. uh, a, a collaboration, uh, comes to fruition.
0: So you mentioned the book unprecedented, um, which was, it was published a month after the election. Is, is that right? December of 2016.
1: That's right. Uh, the, the book on the election, uh, literally had to be done, like all edits complete, less than 48 hours after the election was over. Um, I hope never to (laughs) do anything that hard again in my life. I was working essentially uh, day and night, seven days a week uh, from June to November Uh, To to bring that thing home and uh, thought many times I was going to go crazy during that process nearly did Um, But but finished it
0: uh, Yeah, so that was the revision process and the edits and everything. What was the reporting like? Um, For for someone who didn't necessarily have a background in political reporting um, What was that like for you?
1: Oh my goodness, uh stop me if I go on too long about this, because, <laughs> you know, it was a, you talk about a um, a fast education, you know, I had to immerse myself in all the basics of, of, of political books, you know, just always any, on my way anywhere, I would have an audio book that had something to do with politics, just trying to bring myself up to zero, so to speak, just the basic mm-hmm. uh, knowledge about how presidential politics work. Uh, One thing that really helped uh, my editor on that project, Jody Endo, is um, a former White House reporter um, and very knowledgeable. So she certainly um, helped a lot, too, just for showing me the ropes. But coming in, seeing everything for the first time, uh, so strange. I mean, the first uh, political event, Trump rally, in South Carolina in July of 15. This was just after he had started his campaign Mm -hmm. and just uh, very shortly after he had said the thing about John McCain, I like people who weren't captured. Mm -hmm. So uh, you could say like the education, think about it like this, Matt. Um, I wasn't just learning how presidential politics work or how presidential campaigns work. I was literally coming in as all the conventional wisdom about how presidential campaigns work was being thrown out the window. So in that way, I mean, was it a good or a bad thing for me? Maybe in some ways both. But me knowing nothing was almost an advantage because all the stuff that other people knew or thought they knew – or had known in the past, and it was true, was suddenly not so true anymore. Right. And all the stuff that Trump did that was supposed to be wrong for him turned out to be right, or at least successful. And I'm standing here watching all this unfold as this, in a sense, rookie uh, politics reporter, and it's just surreal. I mean, the first that first rally, that was when he he was angry at. Lindsey Graham, the senator from South Carolina, and he gives out Lindsey Graham's cell phone number on live TV. And tells people to call him. And I'm like, oh, this is how a rally works. Well, <laughs> no, but it is now. Now that Trump uh, is in charge, and I, there are all these veterans who had retired there to this retirement community in South Carolina, and they've got these hats. You've seen them where they all say like either you know U.S. Army veteran, Vietnam veteran, or sometimes they'll actually say name of the ship, the Mm -hmm. Navy ship that they served on. And I'm going up to these people like, surely they're going to say they hate Trump because of what he said about McCain. But no, they didn't. And that to me was the first clue that there was a real disturbance in the force, Mm -hmm. that something was happening out there that no one quite fully understood yet. But Sixteen months later would uh, be realized with uh, you know shattering effect.
0: Mm-hmm. What was election night for like for you?
1: Election night, uh, I was in the uh, CNN Washington headquarters and just watching the returns come in, taking reporting feeds from out in the field as different. Correspondents and reporters gave minute by minute updates from different states and, and the different campaigns. And goodness, what a what a surreal moment! I mean, there were twelve chapters in the book. Uh, the first eleven had already been written and edited, so we just had to finish chapter twelve. Uh, all the polls said Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president, so I had already written a good chunk of chapter twelve as if Hillary Clinton were the next president and it was ready to just be dropped in and then topped off with whatever happened on election night. Right. Well, then things didn't turn out that way. Uh, and there was this sense of astonishment. You could certainly feel it there in, in that CNN Washington bureau, as as people did in many other places, too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, for me... First, watching the results from Florida, I was like, "Wait, that's not how Florida was supposed to go.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Wait, that's not how that's not how Virginia was supposed to go. Uh, that's not what they said North Carolina would do. Trump wasn't even supposed to compete in Virginia, and now he's ahead there. And it just went on like that. Wait, Michigan, what? Wisconsin, and everybody's just getting more and more shocked." And the feeds are coming in about crestfallen Hillary supporters and, uh, you know, that this state and that is turning for Trump. I was like, all right, well, it looks like the the country is speaking in a way that we didn't expect. Mm -hmm. The the polls were wrong, many of them anyway, and uh, we're about to have a different president than we expected. But, oh, by the way, in the near term for you, I'm speaking to myself. Right. (laughs) You've got a job to do, which is throw out what you were going to write in Chapter 12 and start over, which I did. And so for a very frantic uh, 36 to 42 hours of not nearly enough sleep, um, you know, I just sort of started over and wrote a new chapter trying to explain what just happened, um, sent it in and laid down and tried to get some sleep just... <laughs> barely turn off right and um you know then the next and finally turn it in the, the thursday after the election friday morning fly flying home to atlanta and then we find out that leonard cohen has died and uh one of his songs i hadn't known very well it's called anthem and uh i just kept listening to it over and over again it was like somehow I don't know. After all the terrible negativity in the election, mm-hmm. from, from really from both sides, um, I felt like it was restoring me somehow, uh, because it had been just unceasingly negative, that, that campaign. And yeah. I don't care what side you're on, it, it, it was going to take a toll on you. and It certainly did on me. Yeah.
0: So you you kind of um, really came to prominence because uh, of your work in Sports Illustrated. Um, although you did a lot of amazing uh, stuff in the Tampa Bay Times, well, the St. Petersburg Times, now the Tampa Bay Times as well. Um, but you had the four stories that were anthologized in Best American Sports Writing and and won some awards. Do you, is is do you feel like your job is different now that you're not necessarily covering sports or? For you, is it still pretty much the same?
1: It's a great question. And uh, I, there was definitely a part of me during my time at Sports Illustrated uh, that felt like I didn't really belong there. So to, to flash back to my seven years in newspapers, before I ever wrote a magazine story, Uh, I had not been a sports writer Mm -hmm. all that time. I was covering local government, crime, et cetera. Really, I was a crime reporter more than anything else. Lots of uh, police-related stories. And caught this big break and got a chance to write for Sports Illustrated in many ways. My dream job is a magazine that I grew up reading. And and, um, one of my favorite writers, Gary Smith, helped me get my foot in the door and sort of was a mentor for me. But uh, what you have to remember is that the reason I I wanted so much to go to Sports Illustrated, it wasn't because of sports. It was because it was a magazine that had a reputation for such good writing. And so the whole time I was there, I fought this sort of internal battle of uh, people are calling me a sports writer I don't think of myself as one. I'm trying to write stories that aren't really about sports. And that actually made my time there really hard.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, I'm sure I made some mistakes with regard to that and wasn't as eager as I could have or should have been to write stories that were just straight sports profiles or, or things like that. Uh, but I think a big part of that was that I, I never thought writing about sports was really my final destination. And I think it was always bound to come to an end and then it did. And so now uh, with this project, uh, the freedom not to have to find the sports angle on a story uh, feels great. And um, I think this kind of work, which you're what we're talking about now, this series on policing, this is the kind of work that, I was always trying to do, and I feel very comfortable doing.
0: Well, Tom, thanks for joining the podcast. It's been great talking with you.
1: Thanks so much for having me on, Matt.
0: I've been talking to Thomas Lake, a senior writer for CNN Digital. He just published the series, The Trigger and the Choice, and is also the author of Unprecedented, The Election That Changed Everything. You can find just about all of our podcasts. We've done 52 of them now on our website. You'll find all kinds of interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Justin Heckert, Jeannie Murray Chris Jones, Janet Reitman, Wright Thompson, Ben Montgomery, Chuck Klosterman, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Mac McClelland, and so many more. Just go to www.gangritapodcast.com. Stay up to date by following the podcast on Twitter. That's at Gangritapodcast. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Just go there and search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donna Ruma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield U. Technical help, as always, is offered by John Scratta and Steve Cease. Noel Crouchley is a student assistant. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.